Thank you, Becca. Please do keep that passage open in front of you on page 1021. Uh, and welcome tonight. It's good to see you here at Chalmers. Um, my name's Roger. I'm one of the ministers here. Um, and let me lead us in prayer for God's help as we turn to his word. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, the God who is light and life and love, We pray for your help now as we come to your word. Please help me to not depart from it. Help me not to say less than you say or more. And help all of us, Lord, we pray. Stick with you, abide with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight we're thinking about a particularly painful and sensitive topic. Breakups. Not romantic relationship breakups, but church breakups, church splits, where an influential person or group leave a church or where a church splits. Let me say that the, the reason we're thinking about this tonight is not first and foremost because of what has happened in the Church of Scotland General Assembly last week. Although, In God's providence, it will be really helpful as we reflect on that. It will be directly relevant. Nor are we thinking about this tonight because we're around the eight-year anniversary of Chalmers starting as a church congregation, um, having experienced the pain of a breakup personally, leaving the Church of Scotland denomination eight years ago. A number of us won't have been there, but those who were will still feel the pain of it. Actually, that isn't why we're turning to this topic tonight. We're turning there because there's been a church breakup in 1 John. We're working our way through this letter. We've got to chapter 2. And just have a look at verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19. Where John says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. That is, John is writing to this church, he's writing to, in the context of a number of people departing, breaking away. Yes, yes, spiritually, uh, sorry, yes, um, spatially, physically, they've moved. But actually, more importantly, they've departed theologically. There's been a breakup. Breakups like that are deeply painful and unsettling. Because it involves real people on the ground, real relationships, real difficulty, and and perhaps real confusion as well. Even more so, actually, when if you look at verse 26, verse 26, John says those same people are now trying to deceive the congregation that he's writing to. It's not just that these theological innovators have left It's that they're now trying to tell the remaining group that they're wrong, that they're missing out, that the remaining church should shift their view to join these leavers. It's deeply painful. It's deeply confusing. It was then and it is today. When a number of significant and well-known people in a church uh, who are part of it, who led ministry areas, perhaps small groups, or served on camp, perhaps bore the title minister or elder, When people like that are suddenly telling these Christians, you've got it wrong, 
all wrong. You're missing out on the full knowledge of the truth that we now have. You're missing out on the leading of the Holy Spirit today in his church. You're missing out on full relationship with God. That's unsettling. It's unsettled, this church. Likewise, when a denomination's general assembly votes to endorse same-sex marriage in churches or to support an ecumenical statement of partnership with the Catholic Church in Scotland or prepares to shift the ground away from the Westminster Confession of Faith as its doctrinal confession. All three of those things were happening this week. Well, those shifts are unsettling. It's not just departure from the kind of historic position of the Church of Scotland. It's the sidelining of the authority of Scripture in the debates and in decisions. And there'll be Bible-believing Christians and ministers across Scotland this weekend not knowing what to do next, how to stand, where to stand. And so it was with this church that John's writing to, having experienced folk leaving theologically, now trying to take them with them, it was unnerving, so unnerving that the Apostle John felt he had to write this letter. We've been seeing John's aim is to reassure these Christians, you really do know God. Have a look again at chapter 5, verse 13, where he kind of um, tells us why he's writing. Chapter 5, verse 13. His overall aim, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And as you so far in the letter, we've been seeing Uh, John's big introduction, that's really where we've got to at this point. He's introduced three key markers, key proofs, that this church is the real deal, really in fellowship with God, really friends with the living God. Marker number one, uh, this is back in chapter one, verses one to four, marker number one, they are sticking with the eyewitnesses about Jesus, the apostles' testimony to Jesus Christ. That's where we began our series That's the first mark of a church connected to the living God, taking the Bible seriously, the apostles, and their eyewitness testimony to Jesus seriously. That's mark one. Mark two, last week, was uh, taking sin and the cross seriously. John went on from 1 verse 5 onwards to say that the message Jesus gave them was, God is light. In him there's no darkness. God is perfect, blazing purity of light, which means we've got to be serious about sin. We need a solution to sin. It's no good pretending we're okay. We're not in the light of God. Can't just balance it out with a few good works. No, we need someone to actually deal with sin, all of it paid for. And so the second mark of a healthy church is Seriousness about sin and the cross. That will be at the center of a church that knows God. And then finally, um, very briefly last week, we saw the third mark of a healthy church from uh, chapter 2, verses 3 to 11, is love. Love for one another. Because if you've met the real Jesus, testified to the apostles, and you've seen his love at the cross and experienced that, well then how can we not love each other? Those are the three marks. That's where we've got to so far in John. 
stick with the apostles' gospel, the sin-bearing cross, and love for one another. If you're looking for a church, as lots of our graduating students will be, if you're looking for a church, well, look for that. The Bible, sin and the cross, and love. I've said before that sometimes when we look at 1 John, we don't feel reassured. I think that's often because we read it too individualistically. We take those three marks I've just mentioned, and we think, oh, how am I scoring personally on each one of those? As if it's a kind of exam paper, and you need to get a certain score, or else you get cut off. Actually, this isn't written so that an individual person can tell, am I a good enough Christian? No, it's written to a whole group of Christians who've been unsettled by another group. It's written to reassure this church that they are the real deal. They do really know God. Just look at those verses, chapter 2, verses 12 to 14 again. The reassurance. I'm writing to you, little children, that's his word for the whole church, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. 2.13, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now, in all this talk, it may sound like John is picking sides. He's saying they're the real deal. And in tonight's passage, we're going to see him critiquing this other group. Sounds a bit like he's picking sides. And we may feel somewhat nervous about that. Is that really Christian, to pick sides? Where's the charity in that? It's interesting listening to some of the comments being made at the General Assembly's discussion. Uh, There were some voices saying that this is a great step forward in Christian love. There were others saying this does not fit the teaching of Jesus and the Bible. So it's the opposite of love and truth. There was a third group of voices saying, can't we just agree to disagree? Can't we live in constrained difference? Isn't there space for everyone? Not picking sides. Isn't that the Christian way? Well, not actually for the Apostle John. When it comes to a gospel issue, when it comes to a salvation issue, And in this issue that this church is facing, he wants this church to know for sure that they know God, that in sticking with the words of the apostle, they are abiding in Jesus himself, and so abiding in in God the Father. So we're going to look at three points tonight. You'll see an outline on the back of the handout. The second point is going to be his critique of uh, these... uh, people who've, who've left the apostles and left the church. The third point is going to be a reassurance to the, the remainders, the unsettled remainers. Um, I'm going to use leavers and remainers. It's nothing to do with Brexit, and I'm hoping the emotion is settled enough that I can use those words without us getting shivers. Um, so he's going to reassure the remainers, those who haven't moved theologically. That's the third point. But the first point might surprise us. It starts in a surprising place. Let's just have a look at that. Point one, which will it be, love of the Father or love of the passing world? This is verses 15 to 17. 
The command is pretty straightforward, isn't it? Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's pretty black and white. And a little bit confusing. Because on first sight, that sounds kind of odd, a bit ascetic. Like, didn't God make the world? Isn't the universe he created a good thing to be enjoyed with thankfulness received by Christians? What's wrong with loving the Pentlands or Arthur's Seat or a deep-fried Mars bar and iron brew? I mean, are these things not just good parts of God's good creation? Well, you can decide about iron brew. I'm not, is that part of the created order? I don't know. But to actually understand the command, we need to realize world here does not mean creation. We're not talking about the natural world. When John uses the word world and speaks of the world, he is talking about humanity in opposition to him. He's talking about the sinful world, sinful humanity, a world opposed to God. That becomes really clear in verse 16. Just look at it. For all that is in the world, and he doesn't go on to trees and tadpoles and all the blessings of creation. No, for all that is in the world, i.e. the desires of the flesh. I think that's a general heading. And then here's some specifics. The desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. All that is in the world, that is the desires of our sinful nature. What do you mean, John? Like, give us some examples. Well, how about the desires of the eyes? Or in other words, covetousness, things we look at and want, and pride of life. So it's the desire to say, mine, 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 the desire to accumulate for self, to pile up as much as I can for myself. That characterizes love of the world. The evidence for it is all around us, not least in the climate crisis. I don't think it's just a material coveting, wanting to grab more and more for me materially. I think it would include sexual coveting as well. Lust. Not, a self, not an other person serving love, but a self-serving love. Objectifying other people. That's the love of the world, not the Father. But not just the desire of eyes, greed, covetousness, lust, but also pride, that sense of, as I accumulate more, it, make, it enables me to think more highly of myself over others. Material accumulation is a kind of scoreboard to make me feel substantial, to feel a success relative to others. John says that kind of loving doesn't come from the Father of light, the God of light. His love is a generous, other-person-centered, self-giving love, but this love is a self-serving love. Augustine, the, the great early church theologian, put it like this. There's a city of God and there's a city of man, humanity. Or there's a heavenly city and there's an earthly city. And the real difference between the two is the nature of their love. In the heavenly city, it's other person-centered love, the love of God. In the earthly city, love turns in on self. Desires of eyes, pride of life. And John says, verse 17, that world is passing away. Last week, we thought of darkness that is passing away, 2 verse 8. 
and God's light has broken in with Jesus. Well, now this world and its desires is not going to last, passing away. And so John asks, which is it going to be? Go with the flow. Join this self-serving, stuff-accumulating, pride-taking love of the world or the self-giving, generous love of the Father? Which will it be? Love of the Father or love of the passing world? I actually think that's a, that's a salient warning for Christians and churches at any moment in history. But perhaps particularly in a materialistic culture and a status-conscious environment like we're in here, I think it's a good warning for us. The challenge not to get embroiled in the race for stuff. Not just always chasing greater status. I think the question to grapple with is, why is John talking about that here? Like here and now. Why is he talking about the kind of the love of the world before he gets to the main business of the passage, which very clearly from verse 18 onwards is all about this kind of church split and these false teachers. What has love of the world got to do with any of that? Well, because when people move away from the authentic Christian gospel, the gospel of the apostles, the eyewitnesses of Jesus, they're always moving to a message that appeals to the world. I mean, of course they are, or else why would anyone listen? What would be the appeal? I'm not just making this up. If you look across to chapter 4 with me, chapter 4, verse, verse 1, let me just show you some evidence. Early in the book, John just, um, uh, just states these ideas, and then in chapter 4, he puts them together for us. So chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And he says more about uh, their message. And then look at verse 5. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. I wonder if you can hear the connection with our passage. This alternative message, these people who have wandered from the apostles and their eyewitness testimony, have moved to the world. In fact, they're speaking from the world and to the world. Such a striking phrase he uses. They speak from the world and the world listens to them. That's why John begins his warning passage in chapter 2 with this heads-up warning about love of the world. If we just want to accumulate as much status and stuff, and influence, and wealth, and prosperity as we can in this life, we will not stick with the message of the Bible. We just won't. Because the message of the cross is often an offense to the world. It's challenging. It tends to not get you a seat at the top tables of society. And so these teachers in 1 John would rather echo what the world already thinks and says their particular theological innovation here would no doubt have got thumbs up from the secular authorities. John says it's love of the Father and the Son that can keep us 
sticking with the countercultural gospel, even when it's costly. So then, what's it going to be? Love of the Father or love of the world? Now again, at this point, some of us may be shifting slightly uncomfortably about how black or white John is being. Um, it's pretty stark, isn't it? Uh, I actually skipped over it in chapter 4, but in chapter 4, he speaks in verse 3 of the spirit of the Antichrist when talking about these, um, these false teachers. And in our passage, it's right up front, isn't it? Verse 18, children, it is the last hour. You've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Might be thinking, steady on, John. It's pretty strong language. Let's get to our second point. In the last days, there are many antichrists in the world. John here is picking up the, the biblical idea that the, towards the end of human history, there'll be this figure who is opposed to Jesus and his people, a figure called the antichrist. If you want to read more about the specific figure, you can look at 2 Thessalonians 2. Not now, though. John's point here, though, is to not talk about one particular individual, but to say there are many antichrists around. Now, that may sound to our ears a bit wild and wacky. If you've come across kind of horror films and talk of the antichrist as kind of an obviously demonic figure with horns or wild eyes or whatever else. If that's our picture of Antichrist, we may be thinking, well, thank goodness we don't have any Antichrist these days or in Edinburgh. But John's point here, and the reason why he has to spell this out, is because people fitting this description don't have smoke coming out of their ears. He's talking about the people who've departed theologically, these false teachers, who've left the church, who've left the apostles, and are now trying to deceive believers. They are not obvious. That's why he has to explain it. I imagine interpersonally they had a warm, persuasive demeanor. Imagine they were articulate, learned, intimidating, smooth. John says they are antichrists. Why does he call them that? And how would you spot one today? Well, quite simply, because what they are saying is different to and therefore against what Jesus says the real Jesus, as witnessed by the apostles. I'm sure they weren't saying, forget Jesus, he's a load of rubbish, because that wouldn't fool a church. I suspect they spoke lots about Jesus, but had their own version of him, a Jesus who agrees with them, and conveniently agrees with the world around them on the hot topics of the day. See, to, to be anti-Christ, the word it can mean against Jesus, or it can mean in the place of Jesus. Just substituting Jesus with their own version and their own words. And John, who actually saw Jesus and touched him and heard him, says, no, don't be deceived. And he gives us some, some things to look out for. I've put them on the handout. Some things to help us spot uh, an antichrist. First and fundamentally, an antichrist is someone who departs from the apostles' teaching. So the, ninth, the, the, the us in verse 19, that us that they've departed from, it's not actually just the church he's talking to. Or as he would have said, you, they've departed from you. 
Now, he's talking about the us as in the apostles, the us of chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, the eyewitnesses, the we who saw eternal life made flesh, Jesus Christ. Verse 19, they went out from us apostles, but they were not of us. If they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. Or if you look across chapter 4, verse 6, when he says, we are from God, he's talking about the apostles there. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. It's striking. In all the confusion and the pain of this situation, John says it is actually pretty simple. Are these teachers sticking with the real Jesus, the one witnessed by the apostles? Or are they making up their own Jesus, replacing his words with their own? Now, we mustn't think this is only ever a danger out there. Paul warned the church in Ephesus that from within their own number, wolves would come. It's one of the reasons we, we asked to have Bibles open in church because I really hope that if someone up front starts wandering from the truth, the rest of us will spot it. That's the first marker. These antichrists will leave the apostles' teaching for the world. Second marker, they deny that Jesus is the Christ. Chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. So again, denying Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. That is not accepting what the apostles have said about Jesus. Now, it's worth saying, over the years of church history, the nature of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ has come under attack from lots of different directions. But it consistently centers on the question, is he God come to earth? And is he the king, the human king who died on the cross um, as the Christ for us? In the early centuries, lots of the attacks were about the kind of the nature of Jesus, his being, posh word, ontology. So was he really fully God? It was denied by the Arians back then and the Jehovah's Witnesses still. Was he really fully God and man from birth? Denied by the adoptionists. Was he still fully God and man on the cross? Denied by Docetists then and actually Islam today. But all those different questions from the hot topics of the day boil down to, was Jesus who the apostles saw and heard and touched? The divine son come to earth to die as the Christ, the promised king. As history rolled on, the challenges came from different directions. And around the Reformation, the key questions were about um, how you get saved. Posh words, soteriology. How does salvation actually work? How is it possible to be a friend of God? Is it entirely due to Jesus, the Christ's work on the cross? By faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. That was the hot topic of the day. The real issue was, do we accept the Jesus the apostles gave us? After that, um, things moved on. The post-enlightenment modernism and post-modernism issues and questions focused around epistemology. How do you know things? 
eschatology, is there anything beyond the grave? Really, the issue was, is Jesus God and the Christ, the King? And so he has the answers. We trust him over our own reason. Right now in the West, the issue is identity and sexuality. Are we free to define ourselves as human beings? Are we free to redefine what marriage is? Are we in a place where we can say what sexual sin is and isn't? Or do we accept what the apostles said about Jesus, that he is God come to earth, that he is the Christ, the King? And so when Jesus says his definition of marriage It's not one view amongst many. See, the topics change over the centuries, the hot topics, the pressure points with the world's thinking shift. But the basic issue is just the same. Will we accept what the eyewitnesses say about Jesus, the Son and the King? Or will we make up our own version for our current age? And sadly, John says with the people who've left this church, verse 23 says that by denying the real Jesus, they don't have the Father. They've severed their connection with God. And yet they are trying to deceive these Christians. Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And it's clear this was genuinely unnerving for these believers. I think you can understand that. If, if they knew some of these people, if they were well-loved, formerly really close. I mean, many of us know how unnerving it is having theological differences or disagreements amongst our friends or amongst our families, different views on Jesus and what he teaches. And it seems some of these leavers were, were actively undermining the confidence of the Remainers. Seems like they were questioning whether the Remainers really knew what they were talking about theologically, if they were as well-informed as this group. It seems if they were questioning if they really knew the Holy Spirit, if they were really in tune with God. And all of that is why, for our third point, this passage is chock-full of reassurance. John is exposing the position of those who've left the apostles' teaching. He is critiquing in this passage, but actually the main aim of the passage and the book is reassurance. So point three, don't be deceived. Stay exactly where you are, abiding in the eyewitness message about Jesus, and so abiding in God himself. We'll pick it up again from verse 20, and you can see John interweaving reassurance in with his critique. Verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, that's the Holy Spirit, and you all have knowledge. So it seems in a, in a context where their, their confidence that they really had the Spirit and were following his lead, their confidence is being undermined, and John says, no, actually, real Christians who've trusted in Jesus have the Holy Spirit. It may have been that Um, this group was arguing that it was the Spirit leading them into greater clarity and knowledge, that the Spirit was helping them to see further than the apostles had. 
that those who didn't agree must not really have the Spirit. And yet John says, no, you have been anointed by the Holy One. The reassurance continues, verse 21. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. You really do know the truth. If you know the Jesus that the apostles proclaim, you really do know God. You know enough to be safe, eternally safe, saved in real friendship with God. So verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father, but look at the reassurance, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Just stick with our message, he says. Abide in the truth, and you will be in loving fellowship with the triune living God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Which in turn, verse 35, means you can be confident of eternal life. Verse 25, this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. You really are connected to the life of God. Life that Jesus defined as knowing the Father. Life that continues into the new creation when you die. And I think, actually, the final assurance, verse 27, is fleshing out how amazing this relationship actually is. Verse 27, be reassured, you really do have the new covenant blessing. If you've been wondering why, you're probably not, but if you were wondering why, why did we have Jeremiah 31 read before this passage? Well, here's why. You see, in Jeremiah 31, there's this amazing promise that one day God's people will relate to him directly through his Spirit, writing the law on our hearts. Not just secondhand through a priest or a prophet, but personally, that God te- will be teaching, himself, uh, sorry, teaching our hearts himself by his Spirit one day. And John says that's the blessing, verse 25, that Jesus has opened up. The anointing that you receive from him, that's the Holy Spirit, abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it it has taught you, abide in him. Now that's not John saying literally there's no point in Bible teachers anymore. Um, or else I wouldn't have been standing here for the last half hour. Um, And obviously, he wouldn't be writing a letter, would he? He wouldn't be writing to them to explain things if he didn't think it was still helpful to have teachers. But nevertheless, he is saying that every real Christian has the Holy Spirit teaching them in their heart, even as they hear the words of Scripture preached and proclaimed. That Holy Spirit we've been hearing a lot about on Sunday evenings, haven't we, over the last few months? The Spirit who testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, Romans 8. So we can cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit who helps us to know and be convicted that we are sinners needing the cross. And that Jesus' cross is sufficient to pay all of our sins. Sufficient to make us stand before a holy God, the God of light. John says that spirit is already in your hearts. So don't be thrown by people saying, do you really know God? Do you really know the leading of the spirit today? 
the way we do? Well, yes, says John, you do. If you know the Jesus of the apostles, you're members of the new covenant. That is the new covenant we heard about this morning, if you were here, as Jesus broke the bread and wine and said, this is for you, a new covenant in my blood. Not just paying for forgiveness, but opening the way to the spirit in our hearts, a relationship with the living God, fellowship with the Father and the Son. John says there is a stark choice. What will it be, love of the Father or love of this passing world? In the last days, there are many who've left the apostles' teaching and gone into the world. But you do know God if you're sticking with these words. You do have the Holy Spirit. You are in fellowship with the God of eternal life. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you know what these last days are like. There is much confusion, much competition for what is true when it comes to Jesus and eternity. We thank you so much for this book, for the help it is to us, and we pray the help it will be to many Christians and congregations across our land. We pray you would help us to abide in your words and so abide in the Lord Jesus and abide in you. Pray you'd help us to love you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.